Welcome, everybody, to the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, where, as usual, I, your rabbi, reveal how the world really works. And uh, it is odd, I think, that we're living in a time, perhaps the first time in 2,000 years, but it is certainly the first time in all of American history that people who regard themselves as educated and sophisticated, people who are looked up to as the idea makers and the thought generators of society, the pundits, the talking heads, all of these people are utterly and abysmally ignorant of the most mysterious and majestic volume in all of human history, the Bible. There is no book, there is no book at all that has had more editions published. There has never been a book that had had more copies published. It was the very first book to ever be printed on a printing press just before 1450 in Austria by Johann Gutenberg, the Bible. We're living in a time where people who regard themselves as leaders and as culturally literate people truly have no idea whether Leviticus is the name of a man's aftershave lotion or of a book. Not a clue. And so it uh, was with considerable trepidation that my wife Susan and I accepted an invitation to be given a tour around the newly opened Museum of the Bible in Washington, D.C. Now, regular listeners to the show are probably already aware that I am not that an enthusiastic museum attendee. I find that pretty much whatever I might want to see in a museum I can bring up online on my computer at home to greater effect, more speedily, with more examples, better visibility. And so, for the most part, I, I, I must say I do not enjoy museum visits, and I don't put them on my itinerary. Uh, there, are, there are some exceptions. Around small-town America and uh, small village British Columbia, uh, there are small museums. And these are usually one or two or three room museums that uh, reveal the artifacts of the early life in that village. And since we're talking about America, particularly the Western States and British Columbia, uh, we're talking about uh, 100, 150 years old, you know, not, not much older than that. And uh, it's the, those, I must say, I do find poignant and, uh, and interesting. But for the most part, uh, not. And so when we received the invitation, 
for the uh, Museum of the Bible in Washington, D.C., I felt that we had to accept, and I did so more out of a sense of duty. Right? After all, Museum of the Bible, it's a first. But I thought to myself, you know, I've seen, I've seen a bunch of old Bibles. Uh, I've seen archaeological artifacts in Israel. Um, I'm pretty much done with that stuff already. And uh, I kind of thought I was going to have to politely endure it. And I was somewhat relieved when I discovered that the tour that had been arranged for Susan and me uh, was going to be of one hour duration. And your humble host can take one for the team. You know, if, if I'm going to have to go to a museum so that I can tell you about it and maybe save you the time and trouble of having to go, and all of that can be accomplished in one hour, I'm good for that. And so, before I go on, before I proceed to tell you what my reaction was and what we saw, perhaps I should start off by telling you that I did not remain for an hour. We did not even remain for two hours. We remained for five hours willingly and voluntarily. And I'll tell you something else. We truly cannot wait until we can get back. And this time we're going to schedule at least five or six hours for our next visit. So you know that something rather unusual transpired. It really was. Now, I have to tell you that um, I do believe, and I told you a little bit about it in last week's show, I do believe that uh, we are in a, a titanic cultural struggle, and it's a struggle right now that I do believe revolves largely around the Bible. I do think that the struggle in America today is not between blacks and whites, and it's not between men and women, and it's not between people of different socioeconomic strata, and it's certainly not between Jews and Christians. But what it is, is a struggle between those people who believe that biblically-based Judeo-Christian values are absolutely vital for our nation's survival. And on the other side, people who believe that Bible-based Judeo-Christian values are nothing but primitive obstructions to progress. And yes, there are black people and white people on both sides. There are men and women on both sides. There are rich and poor on both sides. And yes... They are Jews and Christians on both sides. But that, I believe, is what strictly identifies the nature of the cultural conflict. 
that has separated the United States in a way perhaps more severely than anything else since the war between the states in the middle of the 19th century, popularly known as the Civil War of the United States of America. Naturally, I don't want to see this one fought with bullets. I hope it can be fought with ballots, and I'm strongly of the opinion it can and will. But it is an intense struggle, because almost every position on immigration or homosexuality or uh, drugs or on taxation or on Iran and North Korea and foreign policy in general and the military, almost every position on every one of those issues, I would probably guess accurately if you told me where you stood on the basic question of whether you believe, and if you have to pick one of these, so if you don't want to say either one is 100%, which one is closer to where you stand? Statement number one, Judeo-Christian values are vital for our nation's survival. Or statement number two, Bible-based Judeo-Christian values are nothing but primitive obstructions to progress. And one of those is going to be closer to where you stand. And the more closely you adhere to one of those two statements, the more accurately can your positions on almost every political issue be predicted. And that's why I say that this is actually the core of the cultural conflict that has created the tensions and the fault lines in our country that came to the fore so visibly on Tuesday, November the 8th, 2016. And so I went to see the Museum of the Bible in Washington, D.C. because I was certain that regardless of how many old Bibles there were and regardless of how many, frankly, tiresome old artifacts from the archaeological digs of the Middle East I was going to take a look at, nonetheless, in spite of that all, there was still significance to the museum because the Bible is the ground zero. It is the central point on the battlefield of today's cultural conflict. And so with all that in mind, Susan Lappin and I traveled to Washington, D.C. to the Museum of the Bible. The website, not the museums, but your rabbis, is rabbidaniellappin.com. RabbiDanielLappin.com and uh, the resource that we've had available for you and people have been finding it immensely useful is called Let Me Go. And it's, it's kind of uh, written on the resource and you'll see it at the website. It's kind of written nicely because the regular phrase 
with which almost everybody, at least those on one side of the cultural conflict are described or familiar with, is let my people go. And we've deleted, you can see we've put a, a, a cross out on my people and replaced it with me, let me go. And the reason for that is because each and every one of us needs to escape our own Egypt. And I don't know what your particular Egypt it is, but I do know that you do have your own Egypt. I don't know what precisely is preventing you from achieving your goals. I don't know what exactly stands between you and your dreams. I don't know exactly what it is that is obstructing your path to your destiny. But something is. And whatever it is can be called by its generic biblical name, Egypt. That's right. In the Bible, there are no just names. Right? There just aren't. Now, uh, you know, Sudan is a name. A, uh, uh, Nigeria is a name. Yes, the Niger River is there. Ghana is just a name. Now, uh, Somalia, by the way, is not just a name. And on the other sides of the Straits is a place called Yemen, not just a name. Because in Hebrew, in the Lord's language, Somalia means left, and Yemen means right. And that's because in the early days of trading, going all the way back to King Solomon, the trading route was up and down the east coast of Africa and all the way up to the Gulf of Aqaba, uh, Solomon's mines, and everything else that was going on at that crossroads of the Middle East. And as the ships passed through that narrow straits, they knew that they had to keep on their left side a place called Somalia, and on the right side a place called Yemen. And eventually, the populations that grew there and the countries that emerged there just took the names that those pieces of land had always been referred to, the left and the right. Because, my dear friends, then, back in the olden days, as now, Jews were disproportionately visible in the areas of trade and commerce. And so as they traveled up the east coast of Africa and headed for the straits leading up to the Gulf of Aqaba, on the left, they kept Somalia, and on the right was Yemen. Egypt, in Hebrew, is Mitzrayim, and it specifically means some malign and often sinister force that obstructs you from reaching your dream. And most of the book of Exodus is devoted not merely to a history of how ancient Israel got out of Egypt, but most of the book of Exodus is nothing other than a textbook on how you can get out of your Egypt. It's called Let Me Go, and it's, a, it's an audio, audio program, very uh, concentrated and, and uh, intense, and, uh, and very life-changing. And so uh, take a look at that at rabbidaniellappin.com.
and uh, look out for Let Me Go and uh, get yourselves a copy. It also makes a wonderful gift. I should also tell you that it is available by instant electronic digital download. So uh, you could actually start transforming your life tonight. Uh, listen to it as you lie in bed and uh, you will find absolutely transformational information seeping into your soul. Quick break and uh, I, your rabbi, I'll be right back. Hello, my dear friends, and welcome back to the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. Uh, speaking about the Museum of the Bible in Washington, D.C., but uh, before I get back to our arrival at the museum recently for a special guided tour that we were very grateful to be invited on, uh, we uh, must first of all take a look at a guy by the name of Voltaire, a French intellectual, uh, he died in 1778, and uh, about two years before he died, just about the same time as uh, the American War of Independence was underway, uh, Voltaire made a notorious statement. He said, within a hundred years of today, the Bible will be extinct and out of print, and it will be of interest only to curiosity seekers investigating ancient works. <laughs> and uh, when I speak about this in live audiences, I generally ask the audiences, how many of you possess a Bible at home? And typically throughout America, and by the way, this is true of whether I'm speaking at a uh, church or a synagogue, or when I'm speaking for business organizations. In both cases, large numbers of people in the United States of America acknowledge having a Bible at home. Naturally, I always ask, how many of you have a set of the writings of Voltaire? And invariably, nobody does. It just makes the point. But it doesn't make the point nearly as eloquently as the fact that in one of the great ironies of history, Voltaire's home after he died was sold to the Geneva Bible Society from which huge numbers of Bibles were shipped year after year after year to the furthest corners of the earth. And, and by the way, just for the sake of accuracy, just so people know, um, Voltaire's French home is actually run by the French Ministry of Culture. But uh, he lived for a period of time in Geneva, in Switzerland, and it is, it is his Swiss home that uh, was purchased by the Geneva Bible Society. And I just make that clear because every now and then I run into people who say, oh, you know, that's not really true. The, uh, his home isn't owned. Yes, it is owned by the Geneva Bible Society. It was bought by them. The uh, French home, however, uh, was taken over by the French uh, government. At any rate, uh, the, the Bible, um, difficult, difficult to ignore its role, uh, both in the emergence of virtually every European country, the emergence of what we think of as Western civilization, and the emergence of the United States of America. Very hard to understand any of these countries and any of these cultures and any of these civilizations without knowing 
something about the Bible, which made it very interesting for me. And I'll tell you why. Uh, back in uh, about, and I'm sorry, I, I, I could have looked this up, but, uh, but I forgot to do so. Um, it was back in, a, in the early 90s, a journalist for the Washington Post, you won't be shocked and horrified to hear, wrote an article headlined, Christians are poor, ignorant, and easy to command. And uh, I wrote a, a very strong and effective, if I may say so myself, denunciation of that article, which the Washington Post uh, actually did publish. Um, and I, I was talking, uh, first of all, I, I uh, debunked that, that on average, uh, the average education of Christians, of committed and active Christians in the United States is higher than the general population. The net worth of Christians is higher than the general population. And as far as easy to command uh, goes, uh, the docility of the general population to what the government indoctrinates into the impressionable young minds of their children, well, nothing could be more reflective of being easier to command. But I've never forgotten that uh, that attitude is widespread among the uh, intellectuals in American society who see themselves as elite as better than everyone else, smarter than everyone else. And part of that is a disdain and a contempt for religious Christians, and Jews for that matter, uh, looking down their nose at the Bible and thinking themselves most awfully clever whenever they come up with some misunderstood and out-of-context biblical quote that allows them to mock and ridicule the Bible, which is, I have to think, one of the most popular forms of entertainment uh, in American cultural life. I've, I've said before that, uh, that they are most meticulously careful not to mock Islam. Oh no. Um, the uh, the creators of many movies, producers and directors, have been asked, you know, why uh, in movies, do you, you know, cataclysmic movies, do you show the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of the Vatican? And they said, you know, why not show the destruction of the Kaaba in Mecca? And they said, <laughs> they're scared, that's why. So, ladies and gentlemen, uh, the reason that our entertainment elite do not mock Islam is because they're cowards. And the reason they feel comfortable mocking biblical faiths of Judaism and Christianity is because they know full well that devout Jews and devout Christians, those who love the Bible and try to live by it, are not about to come and cut their throats 
and throw bombs in their gathering places. So I'm very accustomed to the ease with which our cultural elite choose to mock and ridicule the Bible. And so I was a little bit nervous and a little bit anxious. I was worried that perhaps this museum would lend itself inadvertently with the very best of intentions to giving those on the left yet one more comfortable and convenient target for their silly humor and infantile attacks. That worried me. I, uh, I am concerned and not to suggest in any way that we should regulate our conduct on the basis of what secularists might say or think. I'm not suggesting that what we build or what we teach or what we speak of ought to be restricted for fear of giving cause to the secular socialists of society to mock and ridicule the things we say and the things we do and the things we build. But at the same time, I am a little nervous whenever I become aware of a new target, a potential target. And even though I am extremely sympathetic to many of the various museums around the country, whether they have to do with creationism or whether they have to do with Noah's Ark or anything else. And, and, and God bless them. I mean, people have done nice jobs. They put a lot of energy and work into these things. And uh, they do do some good. They definitely do. But I also fear that they provide a ready and easy target. And so it was with all these thoughts churning through our minds that Susan Lappin and I stepped into the museum. Now, we, having been invited on the special tour, we didn't walk through the front gate, the, through, through the front door on 4th, like everybody else. We walked through a nondescript private entrance on the side on D Street. And uh, we were met by officials of the museum, and we walked in. Well, my reaction, and when I say mine, it was Susan Lappin's also. Our reaction is what I will start off with just as soon as we begin the next segment. But uh, first of all, a reminder, if you don't mind, the website, rabbidaniellappin.com. And surely you know somebody, surely you know somebody who is just not breaking through, somebody who is obstructed, somebody who is, who really has better days ahead of him or her, whether it is maritally or financially or socially or whatever it is. But surely you know somebody who obviously has better days ahead, but simply cannot destroy the barrier that separates them from the path to their destiny. 
you got to know somebody like that, right? Maybe, maybe it's even you. Well, the solution is right at hand. It's called Let Me Go. It's a wonderful one-hour program that I prepared strictly in a practical way to solve this very problem. Go to the website, rabbidaniellappin.com, take a look at the resource called Let Me Go. It's how to transform your challenges and problems into triumphs and escape your own Egypt. So there it is at rabbidaniellappin.com, and I'll be back with you in just a moment. Welcome back, everybody, and thank you for being part of the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. And uh, I always like thanking those of you who've been helping promote the show. I've seen many of you promoted on Facebook and on Twitter. Thank you very much indeed for doing that. Some of you forward the show to other people. Whatever it is, uh, it is working. The numbers keep climbing, and I very much appreciate that. Here on the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, where your rabbi reminds you that the more that things change, the more we need to depend upon those things that never change. And uh, the surest place to find things that never change is the Bible. And it's because of this very central role that the Bible plays in my life that we accepted the invitation to visit the Bible Museum, the Museum of the Bible in Washington, D.C. The museum was created by the Green family, uh, the people who's, uh, who built the business called Hobby Lobby. And I can only tell you that uh, Susan Lappin and I go out of our way to buy stuff at Hobby Lobby. Now, look, I'm not the biggest arts and crafts guy in the whole world. But I always find something to buy in Hobby Lobby. And uh, in fact, we're going to stop in at a Hobby Lobby this coming week just to buy something to tangibly express our enthusiasm and appreciation for the Museum of the Bible. How much did the Green family spend to build this, this Museum of the Bible? Uh, I'm going to give you a round number, and I believe it is a very close and accurate number. I cannot disclose to you uh, where my information comes from or how I know this number, uh, and you're welcome to dispute the number. But after you have been to the museum, because if there is anything I would like to leave you with uh, from today's show, it's that you run, don't walk, run to make arrangements to visit the Museum of the Bible in our nation's capital as soon as you possibly can. And when you've done so, you probably will agree that although the figure I'm about to tell you sounds incredible, once you've actually been there, you're going to say, Aha! Okay! I get it! Uh, the figure, my friends, is a billion dollars. I do not believe that it cost a penny less than a billion dollars. And you know what a billion dollars is? You take a million dollars. A million dollars is a thousand piles of a thousand dollars. And you take a million. And now you take a thousand piles of a million dollars. 
and now you're at a billion. That is without question, in my mind, the minimum that this enterprise uh, absorbed. And what a job it is. You see, I, I told you earlier on that I squirm inside me with unease whenever I see a noticeably religious Jew or Christian doing something silly or saying something foolish. And heaven knows we're all human. We can all do that. And if it's somebody doing it or saying it in, in the public eye and it's, a, it's, it's somebody who's um, known to be a God-fearing and Bible-believing Christian or Jew, I, I will tell you, I, I, uh, I, I squirm with embarrassment because I don't like giving the other side any ammunition whatsoever. Yeah, I do think it's a war. Uh, when I'm in polite company, I call it a cultural conflict. But it will decide the future of the United States of America. Of that, I have no doubt. And through that, indirectly, the future of Western civilization. And with the Bible being so central, I uh, obviously was concerned that the Museum of the Bible might perhaps provide another convenient target for the late-night comedy shows and for the left-wing politicians and for the cable pundits and thought generators, all of those out there to take cheap cracks at the Museum of the Bible. My friends, that is not going to happen. Not under any circumstances, at any time, in any place. That isn't going to happen. It is totally beyond ridicule. It is awe-inspiring. It is magnificent. My friends, it is more modern, more high-tech, more breathtaking than the Air and Space Museum at the Smithsonian. I can't, I can't give it a higher accolade than that. Let me try and give you just a little bit of a picture. But whatever I tell you, please know, is hopelessly inadequate as a mere fraction of what it is that you will encounter there and the enormous uplift with which you will come away. The entry is bracketed by two huge bronze doors that are exact copies, enlarged, right, dozen, a huge number of times, uh, of the plates, the original plates that printed the very first Gutenberg Bible, the first book ever, pub, ever printed on a movable type printing press. And so I mean, it's, it's, it, they're awesome. You, you walk between these two giant tablets and you get a bit of a sense of what's going on. Many of the things you're going to see there are subtle. For instance, when you walk into the museum you know, and you're immediately assailed by uh, an extravaganza of light and color and movement, but on a more subtle level, as you move your way into the museum, you almost don't notice it. It's so subtle, but so powerful. 
the light around you gets brighter and whiter. It really does. So to just give you one example of how this illusion, and it's not an illusion, but how it's carried out, is that as you walk in, the floor tiling is black and white, but just a little bit more black than white. And as you move your way down the hallway into the heart of the museum, you're finding that there's more white than black, and the light intensifies, and you realize that you are being exposed to an enlightenment, literally. And then you finally reach the heart of the museum, which is an enormous atrium going up seven or eight floors to uh, glorious skylights just ushering in vast quantities of bright light. And all of this surrounds the main staircase of the museum. Now, I have never seen a staircase anything like this before. And I must tell you that I am enthusiastic about bold architecture. I hate ugly architecture. I loathe almost anything that Frank Gehry does as nothing but a vulgar chest beating and a pathetic attempt to draw attention to himself which is the very opposite of great architecture. Frank Gehry is not that. But there are bold and exciting buildings to be seen. This is one of them. What's striking about this uh, staircase, and it's again, it's beautiful, it's bright, it's broad, it, it invites not only the eye, but it even invites the foot. You, like you, you want to. You, you don't want to take the elevator. You want to go up the stairs. And this whole staircase, six, seven, seven stories, I think, of it, totally suspended from the top. You don't even see it. It's like gossamer. When have you ever been on a staircase that doesn't rest on the ground or against walls or on poles and supports? This one just hangs in magnificent and majestic suspension. That is probably the least amazing and exciting thing about the museum, my friends. Um, you are going to spend much more time there than you planned, just as I did. I will tell you that, and I repeat it, nobody is about to mock this museum. If anything, it is going to have a powerful impact on everybody who comes, regardless of the mindset with which they walk through those doors. It is an absolutely splendid museum. It is an extraordinary experience. There is so much to see, so much to learn. There is so much high-tech presentation that it's not tiring in the way most museums tire me out. This one is exhilarating. If I sound boundlessly enthusiastic about the museum, it's because I am. And uh, I know that, uh, that it is the fashion that any review must be nuanced. I have to give you the bad as well as the good and provide a balanced view of the museum. Well, I thought about that, and I, I thought, well, it would be probably good if I could say to one thing, well, it would be nice if they fix this or get this right next time. 
I couldn't think of such a thing. I'm sure there is, but I didn't see it. And I came with a critical eye because I do not generally enjoy museums. I enjoyed this one and I can't wait to get back. So Steve Green, thanks to you. Thank you to your family. No government money in this, my friends. This is all private money. The Green family and many of their friends and many other enthusiasts joined in to make the Museum of the Bible. And here we are, other than Israel, the only other country in the world, with a Museum of the Bible right at the heart of the nation's capital. I just love it! My friends, visit the website, not the Museum of the Bibles, but mine, rabbidaniellappin.com. I've told you about the resource that can be life-changing for somebody who is just not breaking through the barriers. Well, I'm recording this uh, early in the new year, uh, the beginning of January. It's the first January show. And um, as a result, I think to myself, it's, it's a great time. Uh, it is a time of resolutions. It is a time for people to take stock and say, here's what I want to achieve this year. And if you've got bad habits that are restraining you and restricting you and confining you, this is the solution. Or it can be a solution, I should say. Uh, there are some people who are not going to pay attention. But it's called Let Me Go. And you will find that at rabbidaniellappin.com. You can even download the program right now. You've got it. And you know what? We don't mind if you lend it to somebody else. Okay, we don't, we don't have it protected with all kinds of digital systems to make sure that only one person can listen to it. No, it's life-changing, and that means it changes hearts. It means it can change a culture, and we want you to hear it. It's called Let Me Go, and you'll see it at rabbidaniellappin.com. Which brings us to as far as we're going to go for this week's show. So thanks so much for being here. Thanks for being part of the show. Make sure you uh, drop us a line. Let's hear how you feel about it. You can do that at Facebook or Twitter, and you can, of course, do it at rabbidaniellappin.com as well. So until next week, my friends, I wish you a week of good health and prosperity. I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappin. God bless.